You're listening to Positivity Strategist. Welcome to our third season, where I'll be focusing on leaders and leading in an appreciative and positive way across a range of industries and professions. What does it mean? How do they do it? What results do they achieve for their people, their organizations, and their own careers? How do they inspire? I'm Robin Stratton Burkessel, host of Positivity Strategist. And today we have a terrific show with my guest, Wendy Gain. Wendy's story is about being a leader in the way that she brings disparate groups or entities together so that they begin to trust each other and build collaborations. And Wendy's speaking to me from her home in Queensland, Australia. Wendy, I'm so honoured to have you on the show. Thanks, Robin. It's a real honour for me to be here too. And while we're thinking of honouring, I'd really like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the um, traditional custodians of the land on which I'm sitting today. They would be the Kwandamuka people, and they are the traditional custodians of the land, the waters and the seas where I'm based. And I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, to the past, the present, and to the emerging of the Kwandamuka people. Thanks for the opportunity. That's very beautiful. Now, Wendy has a background in healthcare and in leadership and management across government agencies and service providers and a range of different community sectors. Wendy, over the years, has invested in all kinds of professional development in the health and business arenas and in human and organisation development. And today, her focus is on brokering partnerships and building collaborations. And she's going to share a number of stories about how she does that and with whom and what she's been able to co-create and accomplish with them. So, Wendy, to start, however, I read from my background reading that it was a terrible disaster in Australia's natural history that, in fact, was a turning point for you in your career. So what's that story? Um, that, that story would be about the Threadbow landslide disaster, which happened, I think, in 1997, and that was the story where um, within the beginning of the winter um, there was a natural landslide whereby some of the road base um, of the Alpine Way gave way and collected the first and then the second um, ski lodge. And within those ski lodges were um, 19 people who were asleep or nearly asleep at the time because it happened close to midnight. So they the, the land gave way and there was this massive landslide and what we what we saw was that there was in fact two, the rubble and, and concrete and cars and all sorts of things that you get with a landslide and people were trapped on the side of that mountain um, for several days. Um, and that was, that was like, I think, the worst um, natural disaster in terms in, in modern history for Australia in that it was a landslide and it was at a ski, ski lodges and it was in one of those premier ski places of Australia in Threadbone. I remember that I was still living in Australia at the time and I used to ski in Threadbow and um, so it was it was um, very powerful for, for the whole nation, in fact, to come together and grieve about that. So, Wendy, for you, what was what was meaningful for you in being part of that and, and you know, what were you doing at the time? I was part of the disaster recovery team, Robin, in that I was I was asked to go up there because of the work that I had done particularly around palliative care and the work I had done with a lot of viewings. Um, I, I'd done a lot of work with people with the dying and the dead um, and certainly around helping people to be able to view um, their deceased. And they felt that that skill would be helpful um, as part of that particular disaster. 
Um, that in the end, that wasn't the skill that I used. I was up there while I was up there. I was more involved in working with the families of the of the people who were trapped. But I also worked with the coroner's team, and I worked with the police and a range of other emergency services, but also the counsellors, all of the people that were brought forward because of their um, trauma recovery skills to be able to work with family and staff and um, tourists and everybody who was there um, to be able to help them to understand what was going on but also deal with what they were feeling and um, to give them some idea about what was lying ahead for them in terms of their emotional responses to what they were seeing and hearing and feeling. Mm. And so with your background in palliative care, that was why you were brought in. And maybe you can say just a little bit about palliative care. Could you just give us a definition of what that what that is? Sure. Um, I think there's some very, very long definitions of palliative care, and it's currently being reviewed by the World Health Organization as we speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but but certainly palliative care is about the care of um, the care of a person who has a life limiting illness. It's um, Previously, it was sort of um, re- regulated across, not regulated, but certainly seen as something that had to do with cancer. But uh, thankfully, over the last sort of 20 years or more, we've come to realise that people with end-stage renal disease and people who have heart failure and children who are dying from non-cancer-related illnesses, um, and certainly people with dementia, um, are all people who have life-limiting illness, and what they need is assistance to be able to understand what's happening to them, but also to be able to help manage the things that they're facing in terms of their symptoms, the support that they need, the support that their families need, mm. and the information about like recognising that somebody is going to die, and then how do you prepare them for that, and how do you help the family to to understand that, accept that, and and help them to, to manage what is ahead of them and then also help them to understand the, the grief um, journey for them that will lie ahead. Yeah, and I want to come back to that because um, I know that you're kind of brokering partnerships um, in this area um, among other things and it's also very um, personal to me because my mother died a number of years ago and she, she was living in Sydney in Australia And for the last two years of her life, she was blessed to have the services of palliative care so she could live and stay at home until her death. And um, we just felt so fortunate that she, you know, had that, that opportunity. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm forever grateful for the skill set and the mindset and the heart set of people who take this very important work on and it's becoming increasingly important. But I just want to come back to um, the work that you were doing during that natural disaster that we started with in Threadbow and you were saying that even though you were brought in because of that background that you had, that you found yourself doing other things. So I'm just curious, how did that change you? I think of all the people I I worked with in Threadbow, we were all changed people as a result of that. And I think if you live to be 100, you probably couldn't articulate what it was that was different, but you just know you're not the same. Mm -hmm. And because there are things that you see and you hear and you feel that you never expected to do in in your life. And it sort of challenges you to question some things and you get, I don't think it's philosophical, but you get to a point where you think, well, what, what am I, this is, this is, life is very short, so what am I going to do to make a difference? And for me, it was that exposure to, I had spent the day before we found um, the one survivor, Stuart Diver, I had spent a lot of time with the families talking to them about, like, the chances of finding anybody alive is extremely negligible. Mm. Uh, and trying to 
and trying to show compassion to those those family members who were so distressed because their, their family members were caught on the side of that mountain. And the next day, after we'd spent that time trying to repair those families, they found Stuart alive. And so that meant that for all the families that we dealt with, that story was true, except for one family. And that family had um, still had hope. And to me, it was about the understanding of the importance of hope mm. and positive hope can be to enable you to to go forward. And it was just such a powerful thing in for me in that um, you, you recognise it within that family. And and I really, like, I, I have always connected, like, that the positivity of hope and how, like, when you've got hope, you've got something. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's really lovely. Are you familiar with um, Jeannie Cockell and Joan MacArthur Blair's book, on appreciative resilience, I am Robin. I, I have recently just purchased a copy of it, and it's in my it's in my to read pile. Um, I have I've, I've taken it as a sneak peek here and there, but I'm really looking forward. Um, and I've got some days off coming up to be able to have a good read of it. Yeah, because I think you know the way that you're describing hope and what it does to us as individuals, particularly in moments of adversity or or challenge that it is a foundational positive emotion. And by the way, I just want to say that any of the references we make to some of these materials and Wendy's work will be available as links on our show notes page for this episode, and that's going to be positivitystrategist.com slash PS113. So I mentioned the word appreciative, and I know that you've um, been trained in appreciative inquiry among many, many other um, disciplines and uh, models and so on. So what does being an appreciative leader mean to you? I think an appreciative leader um, brings with it a level of responsibility in that you're looking um, to, to lead people in a positive direction, but also to help them find, whether it's find the hope or find the positive thing that they can actually do to be able to move from where they are into something different. Um, one of my colleagues has, an, has a tattoo on his arm which says, um, um, be calm and be full of hope. And <laughs> there are a few times when we've been super busy and trying to get things done and that, that tattoo on his on his arm is, is ever-present and it's also like the most particularly delightful reminder that there is always the opportunity for hope, mm. um, which means because it has such a positive connection for me, it always means that there's a positive way forward and we and I'm always committed to being able to find that the, positive, the positiveness to be able to move forward. So as a leader, I think it's important to be able to um, to be able to lead that, to be able to say, okay, if 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 you find yourselves in a situation where you don't know what to do and you're stuck and you're dead in the water and nothing's happening for you, let me help you navigate your way forward. Let me help you find a way to make this better for you. Yeah, and so just developing that a little bit, Wendy, um, with the work that you're doing. Uh, my understanding is that you're, you're um, brokering partnerships and building collaborations across a ver variety of different contexts. So um, would you say a little bit about that work that you're doing now and maybe how the appreciative inquiry approach is helping you among, you know, the partnership work that you do? So just tell us more about this. I suppose it sounds like I'm a little bit all over the place, Robin, because I tend I tend to have lots of little projects going at the same time. Certainly some of the work I've been doing is being able to build partnerships across palliative care and aged care. 
And, and in those partnerships, it's about being able to look at um, a, a true partnership. So, and I, I think a partnership, it's a word that is used way too frequently and inappropriately. So when you talk about a partnership, it's really about, it's about an ongoing relationships where the, the risks and the benefits are going to be shared across those that are in the partnership. Mm. Think about that definition. There's a lot of people who use the partner and partnership word without that meaning. And they just say, well, I'll just partner with you and we'll go over here and do this. But there's no, there's no intent to be able to share that, that, that the risks and the benefits. So for me, whenever people say, oh, Wendy, I'd like you to come and work with us to be able to develop a partnership, I said, then we need to be really clear about what a partnership is. And part of that work is bringing people along for that, that level of understanding what is a partnership and then what are those principles which must be present in order for a partnership to not only to form but to flourish. Mm. So in my work across aged in palliative care, um, you're working with a workforce whereby palliative care are are health professionals who have all got like university degrees and they've all been well trained and they've got rafts of experience. Whereas in the aged care workforce, they not necessarily have any health background. Like the, there's no requirement um, for the for the people who work in aged care to actually um, have any health background. They can in fact um, they they do some level of training, but it's not regulated. So the levels of understanding across the aged care workforce and then the, across the palliative care workforce are quite quite different. And so. You need to sort of find some common ground and being able to unpack that meaning of partnership and collaboration and how you would work together to be able to improve or to improve the care of the older people that they're caring for. Mm. So how do you do that? Certainly it tends to be, in, it's always in conversation and I think you can never be, you can never talk enough to help people to understand. But you also need to take on board the principles of health literacy and within Australia, that's been a growing movement probably over the last sort of five to ten years. And in talking about health literacy, it's about being able to understand that the average reading age of people in Australia tends to be about grade six, grade seven. Mm-hmm. And that means that if you're wanting to be health literate either as an organisation or as an individual, you have to recognise that not everybody has your level of reading and comprehension and being able to take that information and do something with it. So. There's a whole range of readability tools that sit across the web that you can download for free. But if you take something that you've written or a document or a piece of work that you want to be able to share with other people and then you apply a readability tool, you'll be able to see where that piece of work is actually aimed. So if you're working with a group of people who, whose um, educational attainment level is maybe grade 9 or grade 10 in Australia and the piece of the piece of writing or the brochure or the, or the workbook that you're sharing with them is, aimed, is, like, is based at a university level, you will know that you'll have trouble mm. getting, getting a common level of language and understanding across the people that are meant to be sharing that workbook. So the health literacy is, is incredibly important. And it's not about dumbing something down. It's about making your language clear and concise and understandable. So you know when someone has, has got the health literacy um, element correct in that when they produce something and somebody can read it and then make a decision based on that information or they can take that information and do something with it. I think one of the best tests is to, if you try and read the label on a medication bottle <laughs> or try and read the label on something you're buying off the shelf in the supermarket <laughs> and if you said, you know, can I eat this or can I take this, this particular thing, there's a lot of people who, uh, particularly about the way those labels are written, who couldn't tell you whether it's actually healthy for you or it's not because of the way the information is gathered there. Like it's aimed at when you 
think about those labels, particularly um, like the medication bottles, when you're trying to work out, like, can I have this if it's got this much protein or sugar? You look at it and you go, I've got no idea. <laughs> um, and it, it means that, that that particular label is not written in a way that it can be consumed or can be um, used by the average Australian to be able to understand what to do with it. Yeah. So that health literacy is a principle that needs to underpin everything you do across partnerships as well because you need to be able to speak a language and have a level of understanding that everybody knows what you're going to do and how you're going to move forward to do that. So I was curious in asking that question, Wendy, about um, in in building these these partnerships and these collaborations, whether appreciative inquiry comes in it in any way in terms of you know seeking to hear stories or. Um, best experiences or meaningful experiences or high points where people begin to share what it is that they value about that the work that they're doing irrespective of you know their educational level or the contribution yes Robin it absolutely does and particularly for me I find um, whenever I'm working with a partnership whether we're I'm working with a group of people who've already come together and decided to partner and then they've approached me because their partnership is not progressing I have found that appreciative inquiry is particularly useful in in um, situations whereby the, the people that form that partnership have a really, really difficult history or they've all experienced something negative across them or it, or it is one of the barriers that is stopping them from actually forming a cohesive collaboration and moving forward. And certainly there was there is an example that I used um, whereby there was a group Across one very, very large organisation, they had said they wanted to form a partnership and to improve the, the care of um, their older, the older Australians that they were caring for in one arm of their facility or one arm of their organisation. And they had the best of intentions, but they found that even though they'd come together and they'd written uh, like a, an agreement as in what their partnering agreement would look like, nothing was happening and they weren't moving forward. And when they approached me. We started talking about like, you know, the five principles of partnership and were they there? And some of them were and some of them weren't. And then they we talked about their history and how um, as, as, a, as a community there had been a particularly difficult um, history across the Aboriginal people of that particular um, of that particular community. And that what what the Aboriginal people had felt was and, and been exposed to was quite common across other places in Australia. But it was part of that, like how do you move forward when you have a history whereby people have been marginalised and they've been targeted and not been allowed to to experience um, health services the way everybody else did and the way that they've been separated out and they've not been included and they've not been able to consume information because, the, you know, things weren't presented like in a health literate way and then also was no cultural considerations for those that particular group of Aboriginal people. Mm. When they when they, they started un, like, talking to me about that, that was that was their experience in this terrible history, and whilst they all acknowledged it had been terrible, and they were making a very very concentrated conscious effort to move forward, they were still stuck. And so, what I had proposed was that we would undertake an appreciative inquiry process to be able to look for some positives to move forward. So. And that's what we did. We 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 did it in a very fast amount of time. Like we only really had um, three quarters of a day to do it in. We actually undertook like you know let's let's pull forward some of those positive experiences and let's use those experiences to be able to form that new provocative statement or that new vision statement for us as a team and then identify what that looks like and then we actually developed an activity plan 
that enabled them to be able to work on the things that were important to move from where they were in the direction they always had intended to go in. They just now had like that process and that mechanism to be able to do that. And that appreciative inquiry process for them was the absolute linchpin or the absolute turning point. They presented their work um, to, a, to a forum sometime after we had done the appreciative inquiry process and they said it was in fact that appreciative inquiry process that enabled them to move forward otherwise they would not have they would have just disbanded and said that we can't do it mm. and did you actually call it appreciative inquiry or you did it by stealth <laughs> no, I, I was conscious to call it appreciative inquiry even though in australia it's not so well known um uh, and there are times when I have done it by stealth. Yes, I'm guilty as charged. Um, <laughs> but I certainly in this in this process I did because I wanted them to. Uh, I really wanted to unpack what appreciative inquiry was and how it was how we we're going to use it that day because I wanted to bring them with me to understand the process, but also to understand where we were going to take it. Mm. And uh, it was only about seven or eight people in that in that room, but it was incredibly powerful particularly when all of those people knew each other and they'd all, you know, they'd all had a chat over the frozen chickens in the local supermarket from time to time because it was a reasonably small community. Um, <laughs> but what they didn't know about each other and what they were able to pull forward as their positive experiences was just, it was just the, the energy in the room went from, you know, this is too hard, we can't do this. It's not that we don't want to, but we just can't. And then it went from that feeling to the positive and that you can feel the energy building in the room and, it just sort of like once they were once the energy built, we just kept going and getting stronger. And what was one of the most fantastic things was that um, they had that that particular organisation had just put into the floor of their facility um, the totem of the local people, and they could actually align their provocative statement or their vision statement with that actual totem. So they could, and what they what they developed, and and they they said this is this will align with the, with the totem, and they could explain how that would come together. And so that for them was like, I, I personally would not have seen it because I don't live in that community and it's not something I would have seen. But for them, they could just see how it, it just connected and they connected them and it connected the people and it connected the community. And it was just, um, you know, it, was like, it was like balloons sort of floating up to the ceiling. If we didn't have them tethered to a piece of string, I think they would have floated away. <laughs> so um, that, that's, that's how positive it was. And when they presented some months later at this particular forum, you could feel their energy still there, like the, the way they owned that process and the way they owned the achievements and what they've been able to achieve since then. And it was just one of those really, really uplifting, uplifting for me as a facilitator, but also uplifting for them as people who felt that, you know, they, they couldn't do what they wanted to do, even though they desperately wanted to do it. So it was a really good outcome for them. Yes, that's lovely. And so, you know, I was thinking about, was there a moment when you felt that, oh my gosh, this is working. And I think you've described that well. Can you share any other stories? Like this is really working now. I see people are getting it and I can see people are beginning to really hear each other and feel seen. Yes, I have. I had one recently, um, actually, this year. I co-hosted a masterclass in partnerships, developing community partnerships with my colleague, um, Dr. John Rosenberg. And um, John and I co-facilitated co a workshop whereby we were looking at developing community partnerships to help build a compassionate community. And um, there are six approaches to developing a compassionate community and community partnerships is, is just one of them. But John and I were doing a masterclass and we, we had a group of 30 people who I think two of them vaguely knew each other, but basically it was 30 people who were very keen to go back to their communities and work on 
developing a compassionate community. And so John and I undertook a, a day-long workshop, and part of that workshop was what we, what we did was actually we undertook an appreciative inquiry process to be able to bring forward those positive, um, you know, to bring forward those positive experiences that people had had, and um, to then be able to develop, you know, vision statements or provocative statements, and then um, we also then got them to. Um, to develop that vision of what it looks like, and and then we also again developed the active action or activity plan that those individuals are going to take back to their communities to be able to to move forward. So their 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 vision statements were um, full of passion and and full of things that they wanted to wanted to be able to achieve. If you've got time, I'll just read one to you. There was said one of the examples was provide passion with experience to encourage and engage the community in conversations about death and dying and empower them to make informed decisions. So that was just one of the provocative statements that they actually produced as part of that AI process. Yeah, that's very powerful. And you mentioned, so this was part of the compassionate communities. So maybe you could say a little bit about that because I know you mentioned to me in our previous conversation that Canada's doing great work in this and so is Australia. I don't know what's happening here in the United States. Just tell us a little bit about compassionate communities. Sure. The compassionate community within Australia takes on a death literacy focus. So, um, death comes, literacy. They're calling it a death literacy focus. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's about being able to talk about death and dying in the open without having to hide it and not having to be able to use use words like passed away or no longer with us. So it's about being really quite open and honest about people die mm-hmm. and being able to help prepare people for death, but also. Live, to be able to live in a community where people feel comfortable to have that conversation but also to understand what they as a community member could do to enable that person who is dying to be able to stay at home if that is what they want. So it aligns really, really well with um, palliative care but it also aligns with the public health palliative care movement across the world in being able to, to in being able to connect communities to understand their role that they can play in being able to help people to have the conversations like they have things across Australia like death cafes um, whereby people can come and talk about or you have awareness weeks or you can have those um, like a billboard on the outside where you can say before I die I want to and then you can fill in the spaces of things that like the top one, top five, top whatever mm-hmm. of things that you want to do. So it's about being able to talk about death but also to understand if I live in a community, what is it that I can contribute to enable someone to do that? Compassionate communities is about being able to develop community to, to recognise and understand um, what they see, but also how they can contribute to that and support that and be part of that. That's so important mm. um, because, you know, people, I mean, I'm in a community where people don't really want to talk about dying and death um, and it's such a part of life. Yes, and certainly compassionate communities takes it on board, and and your community is not unique, Robin. Mm. Um, so in being able to have the death cafes and being able to have Dying to Know Day and Palliative Care Australia here, um, actually sort of put out a whole range of pamphlets and resources to enable you to have Dying mm. to Know, so you can actually have whether it's a conversation with your neighbour or having a conversation in 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 in, like in an aged care facility mm. or having it at your local at your local coffee shop, whatever, to be able to try and get 
that taboo back on the back on the topics <laughs> and being able to say we want to we want to be able to talk about death and not have people run from the room screaming because they don't want to talk about it yeah that's right you know with our lens of um doing things through strength based and positivity and through this lens of appreciation i think we have a big role to play to make it more accessible and for people to feel more comfortable um about this kind of conversation absolutely robin and i think I'll just say to you now that in October this year um, in Australia, just um, west of Sydney, there's actually going to be the Public Health Palliative Care Conference run by Compassionate Communities, um, the grounds the Groundswell Project here in Australia, and it takes on board, like, I think it's a two- or three-day um, three conference about like um, death literacy but also about the things that are happening across public health and palliative care across across the world. Like I travelled to Canada um, in 2017 and certainly I presented at the Public Health and Palliative Care Conference there and they were very interested in the work that I was doing in appreciative inquiry at that conference. So there's a lot of interest in AI within the public health palliative care movement but also within compassionate communities sometimes it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to separate them out but it's, it's very very much a topical thing and that conference that's coming up later this year would be of interest to a lot of people that are listening before wrapping up this episode with wendy gain i'd like to remind you of two things one that the show notes where you can find links to connect with wendy and the resources she shared with us are at positivitystrategist.com slash PS113. And the second thing is to remind you that you can support this show as a patron or sponsor. And you can find details of what that means for you and me, my guests, and the field of appreciative inquiry on that same page. And that's positivitystrategist.com slash PS113. Or you can go directly to my Patreon page. And that URL is positivitystrategist.com slash Patreon. And Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. It would be so delightful for you to join my one sole patron so far. And he is Johannes in Munich, Germany. So let's together elevate this message with more resources to make it even better. And now back to my closing with Wendy. If there was one or two wishes, <laughs> this is a very appreciative inquiry question. Um, if there are one or two wishes or three wishes that those of us who are in these roles of leading others through our innovations and the work that we do, and, and when it comes to bringing out the best in ourselves and others, you know, what, what wishes might you have? Somebody would wish that people would check or challenge their assumptions. Um, I've done, I did some work within an, an innovations workshop um, a couple of years ago, and part of that work was that you had to someone had to nominate a problem, and then in a round robin process for innovation, we were looking at how we might solve the problem. But what was fascinating was that when we started trying to solve that problem, we realised that what was presented as a problem, in fact, wasn't the problem. <laughs> it was the solution that they'd put forward in, in response to what they saw the problem was. Or what it, so when we kept going backwards to try and understand what the problem was, we had to challenge assumptions. And it was in challenging those assumptions that we realised, actually, the answer to this lies in a completely different direction. <laughs> So we then, as a group within this round-robin process, then started looking at how to address that. So... 
and I just it really reinforced to me the importance of challenge all of your assumptions because we come to things thinking, oh, that's like that because of this. And it's like, no, no, you need to challenge your assumptions because it's in challenging those assumptions there's the opportunity for change and there's the opportunity to really understand or to say, you know what, I don't understand this. I really need to understand it better. Mm. Um, so I suppose, yeah, I'd leave it at that. I'd say I would say challenge your assumptions. I love that. Thank you. And it reminds me of the literacies that Sally Lee and I um, mm-hmm. podcasted about, and that was the uh, first one, which was about um, inviting inquiry, challenge our assumptions. Well, Wendy, I, Wendy Gain, I want to thank you so much for um, all that you've shared with us, and you're doing significant work in the world and all those people in your communities. I look forward to talking to you again soon. If you have questions or ideas that you'd like to hear discussed on upcoming episodes and possibly participate in our show, go to positivitystrategist.com forward slash podcast where you can submit your ideas or leave me a voicemail. I will respond. And also, if you appreciate this show, I'd love you to share that by leaving a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Also, you can be notified of new episodes by email. Links to all these suggestions are available on positivitystrategist.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening and remember what you focus on grows, so grow towards your best.